This is Podco Media Networks. It's the Demystifying Data Podcast with Chris Clegg, where we deconstruct the tools and techniques marketers need to make data more actionable. Here's Chris. Hello, welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Demystifying Data. I'm your host, Chris Clegg, and today we're going to do what we promised the previous episode and follow up on that idea of what kind of questions should we be asking. But in today's episode, we're going to move away from the kind of questions that you should be asking your field staff to recap after each event day and go into the kind of questions that you should be asking consumers. Because both sides of the equation are extremely important. You want to get your field staff reporting on the right metrics so that you have a solid archive of what you did. And that becomes the causal variables, the independent variables, the things that help you understand what's driving outcomes in your marketing. And then you want to get a measure of those outcomes. You want to get a measure of that impact, both in the context of your reach quality, as well as the changes in attitude and behavior that you're generating as a result of your marketing communication. And that's going to come from consumers directly. There are a lot of different ways that people try to get that information, to get that idea of impact going to alternative sources. And that holy grail is that automated method of counting impact. And and God knows we've tried to find it here at Portmont. We've, We've spent 10 years trying to figure out what's the most efficient way to get a measure of value and impact from consumers in marketing. And we've looked at beacons. uh, We've looked at facial recognition. We've seen that data and how it's applied in a number of different settings. We've looked at sentiment scores. And we don't have an answer for you yet on what is the automated process of getting impact behavior from consumers. There are some things that we can get through that, but at this point, it's not sufficient. So you got you to gotta have a place in your run of show where they can provide you with feedback, where consumers have an opportunity to provide you with input on what that experience was like for them. And surprisingly, you don't need to ask them a lot of questions. Really, at the end of the day, there are three questions that are mandatory, four that we strongly recommend. And because there is such a few number of questions you need to get feedback on, there's a lot of room to grow with that. There's a lot of room to go down tangents or do different things if research is an important part of your activation strategy. But if it's not, those three questions where we're going to recommend four can be slipped into almost any run of show and you can get good feedback and get good outcome impact measures as a part of what you're doing. There's a lot of different ways you can get those impact measures from consumers directly. You can integrate it through a registration process. You can integrate it through a premium delivery system. So if they're getting a picture taken, they got to go online. Oftentimes there's a survey as a part of that process. You can collect registration information and then follow up 24 hours later, three weeks later, three months, six months later to get information from them. And all those are very legitimate and really good ways to measure some critical things around the impact of experiential. But I have found the most robust data is coming from consumers as they exit the footprint on site. And by robust, I mean it has the largest volume of data, it's the most cost-effective to collect, and it shows the greatest insight from an analytics perspective. And so the three questions that we say are minimal 
are three questions that we're going to recommend you integrate as an exit survey as a part of what you're doing. And so what are those questions and what, what, what matters? And, and really, how does that relate to the larger picture of benchmarking? And what you're trying to do is not only prove the value of what's happening right now, but six months down the road or five years down the road, how can you look back on all the work that you've done, either as a brand, a department, or an agency, and learn from that and use that to be better at what you're doing? How do you build that benchmarking database of impacts and of ROIs so that you can really figure that out? And so for us, there are 11 questions that matter. There are 11 variables in the survey aspect of our benchmarking database, which is really an amazing resource for us. It, it's, I mean, we're look, talking over a quarter million records of consumer interviews across all these different scenarios, and it becomes this wealth of information. And there's no reason you shouldn't be having that same resource in-house for yourself. So let me go over these 11 metrics. And as I do that, let me talk about how we gather that information and what it's all about. So the first metric, and maybe there's 10, because I'm um, the first metric is really an ID number. And it's an ID number that links us back to the year, to the scenario in which data was collected, and how that fit into a larger picture. And it's really our primary key in our database. But the second variable in that list is the date, the date the the data was collected. And that's valuable because it gives you a sense when looking at age, you have a a reference point, and I'll talk about that in a few more minutes. But it also gives you information that allows you to understand the day of the week the activation was happening. And when you're looking at really the minutia of impact, we know that different days of the week at different kinds of venues are going to attract different types of people. And so even thinking about like retail is an easy example. We know that the typical shopper on a Tuesday is going to be different than the typical shopper on a Saturday. And we even know the typical shopper at 3 o'clock on a Tuesday is going to be different than the typical shopper at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. And it has to do with shopper marketing and who's who's doing what and how we tend to, to stock our pantries. And so we collect date so that analysis is possible. We also collect the time that the survey was collected. And that allows us to, again, do that day of the week and that time of day analysis. So when I'm measuring on-premise activations and I'm measuring folks at seven o'clock in the evening, maybe maybe even like a five o'clock in the evening, getting their feedback at a happy hour versus 11.30 at night in a nightclub, those are going to be very different scenarios, different environments, different kinds of environment that the marketing is going to perform differently. And so, so being able to make that designation is important. And then we also designate in our survey side of our benchmarking database, whether the survey is a control or a test group. And basically what that means is that we want to get, in many of the studies we're doing, we want to get a baseline. We want to get a measure of consumer sentiment when they've had no exposure to the marketing, as well as a measure of consumer sentiment after they've had exposure to the marketing. And the difference between those two is the relative impact of the marketing itself. And we can do that on site with the same kind of consumer at the same time that the event is engaging, then it's going to give us the purest control test example. There's other ways to get control test, other ways to get control data. You might already have it if you're a brand manager. It might be something you can get through a, uh, a survey at a different time of day, different day of the week, or even from a, uh, a national panel. But I've found the purest control is going to be there on site among folks that have had no exposure to the experience. And so that's something that we, we also want to track. And so getting into the questions that matter, the first question that I think really 
matters is the year they were born. We want to get an age measure. We can record gender by observation in most cases after the fact, but we want to get a year of birth. We need to ask that question. If you're doing any kind of on-premise work or any kind of adult beverage work, obviously it's a gatekeeping question. We got to screen out anybody who's younger than LDA plus one, but it's also one of the primary variables in most marketing. We, we tend to design marketing that's set up to have messages that appeal to folks of different generations differently. And uh, I would speak to somebody in their 20s about the value proposition of a product probably differently than the value proposition of the same product to somebody in their 50s or 60s. What we seek and what we look for in the products and services and who we choose to associate with as consumers, that changes throughout our life. And so it's very common for consumer profiling and for target consumers from a marketing program to be fundamentally profiled by an age group. And by me measuring age as a part of what is a primary priority in my surveying database, then I'm able to understand the degree to which we're on target and we're reaching the kind of people that we intended to reach. And then when I couple that with gender, which can be measured by observation in most cases, then I'm able to look at age and gender profiles from a consumer targeting perspective and get a lot of insight into when am I reaching the right kind of people based on what the marketing was intended to do based on channel selection and and routing schedules and the like. So uh, we've got in the database, we've got that ID number as first, we've got the date as second, we've got the time as the third variable, we've got whether it's control test is the uh, fourth variable, and the fifth is gender, and the sixth is the year the person was born. And then what's a really big deal in a lot of cases is whether or not there are kids in the household. And when it's relevant based on the product category, then we want to go ahead and measure that. And there's a lot of different ways to think about it. You could get the age of the kids in the household. It could be number of kids in the household. And those are certainly relevant when you're marketing products that are designed to be consumed by kids. But really, in many cases, you're also looking at, is this a household that has somebody under the age of 18 in it? And those are going to be very different dynamics. And when it's relevant, we want to include that. And that's the seventh variable that we'll include. And then the eighth variable that we include in our survey database has to do with product awareness. And we measure that in a very specific way that relates to their past experience, either consuming marketing or consuming the value proposition of the product itself, whether it's tasting it or buying it or being a customer of that service. We want to get a measure, and it's going to vary slightly how you think about it, depending on what you're marketing and what you're selling. But ultimately, getting a sense of the consumer's past experience with the brand is going to be a critical question. And I would say after you ask age, that's number two as the critical question. If nothing else, What matters here is that you're getting a measure of who are current customers versus non-customers. And you need to know that for your ROI modeling because you've got to take current customers out of the mix. You can't recognize them as incremental revenue when you are measuring their impact in the marketing because you can't say with comfort that they wouldn't have purchased otherwise because they already are current customers. And we, we think about current customers in the context of, you know, have you purchased within the most recent purchase cycle? So if we're talking about milk, it might be in the past week. If we're talking about toothpaste, it might be within the past three months. But whatever that purchase cycle is, we want to know, have they bought within that most recent purchase cycle? And if they have, then we got to consider them current customers. And even if your brand or the product you're marketing has a very low incidence in the market, even 
even if it's, let's say, 5%, you think to yourself, well, this doesn't matter because I know it's only 5%, you would be surprised at how much you over-index for current customers at Experiential. And that 5% market penetration, you might see 15, 20, 25% of the people at your event set are current customers. And it has to do with that whole tribe piece. So when someone's at NASCAR and they see a brand that they're associated with already promoting themselves or, or with a footprint of some sort, you know, that's their people. The consumer gets kind of excited and they know that product, they know that brand, especially if that brand's done a great job with lifestyle matching historically. And the consumer is going to want to experience that at a higher rate than the consumer consumer or the customer is going to want to experience that and be with their people at a higher rate than the non-customer. And so your footprint will always over-index for current customers. And you know, when you're in an acquisition program, if you're talking to current customers, you're really in a loyalty program. And, and marketing that talks to customers is about loyalty and, and increased usage. And marketing that's talking to non-customers is about acquisition. And regardless of what your intent is, that's going to be the reality. And when we're thinking about impact, we need to designate that. We need to make sure we can control for that and understand how that's happening. And so that's why that brand awareness, brand experience question as a second question is so critical to our understanding of how this marketing is performing. And then finally, the third question can be measured in a couple different ways. And it has to do with the primary impact. So what is the behavior that represents success for the marketing? In many cases, that's buying the product, but that could be expanding the existing service. It could be willingness to talk to an agent or talk to a rep or, or walk onto the dealership lot. It could be that you're looking to get incremental gains, or it could be that you're looking to kind of move them through the whole purchase cycle to become a customer. But in situations where you are working with consumers that are further along in the purchase cycle, and it's legitimate to ask to expect them to become a customer because of the marketing experience, then a measure of purchase intent in some way or another is very appropriate and should be that third primary question. Now, if you are working predominantly with consumers that are earlier in the purchase cycle, maybe it's a new brand extension, it's a new product category, maybe it's a new consumer target, or maybe it's a higher ticket item, but it's reasonable to expect customers to be earlier in the purchase cycle, your marketing is going to be working when it's affecting their attitude towards the brand. And therefore, a measure of advocacy, a recommend intent might be a more accurate measure of success than a measure of purchase behavior, because that may be not relevant yet in their process. And so we often recommend both purchase and advocacy, purchase intent and advocacy as questions. And that's where I, I flip between three versus four as the primary questions in your exit survey. And in our benchmarking database, we certainly record both. We certainly record purchase and recommend. That's the ninth and 10th variable that we believe really matters, number eight being awareness. But you're going to want to figure that out for yourself based on what's there. And so those those are the core questions. Those are the things that you want to ask. At a minimum, absolute minimum, you want to get a measure of the year they were born. You want to get their past experience with the brand and you want to get an outcome variable. You want to get an outcome of purchase or recommend the dependent variable for talking about the statistics. You want to get that measure so that you can really understand how you're creating some kind of impact. Now, the last two variables in our benchmarking database have to do with segmentation and the ability to go back into what we're doing and look at how it varies around things that we have 
control over. And we look at market and we organize market by state. And then we look at the event type. And event type is tricky. And I think the best way to think about event type is to think about it in the context of the gathering of a community and the gathering of people and what they are all about. And we, you want to have event types that are diverse enough that you can that it's not all into one lump sum category, but you don't want to have hundreds of them where you don't have the ability to do any kind of robust analysis. And so there's got to be a a middle ground there. And right now in the world that we're settling on, we're settling on these common event types is what we tend to use in our database. One is what we call a community event. And community events tend to be things that we believe are family-centric activations. That could include activating at parks, It could include activating at zoos, but it's really, it could be an LGBT event. It's really about a local grassroots community where you have a footprint and people are coming together. Oftentimes the location is already the destination and you are adding to that experience with your presence. When we talk about athletics and sporting events, we think about sporting events as being college or professional sports, motor sports. We think about athletic events as being those foot races, the non-professional sports like marathons, races. Races, tough mutters, those kinds of things. We record fair festivals as a pretty broad event category, and we include in there music, food festivals, carnivals, kind of the art festivals. In many cases, all of those are mixed together in some way or another. We used to think about and try to think about food festivals versus music festivals versus art festivals separately, but we found the lines between them blur too much, and you don't get that robust analysis on the backside because of that blurring. So we group those together into fair festivals and, and look at them as a event type. You've got street intercepts, which are oftentimes we would call that the same as guerrilla marketing. And what it's really about, it's about it's about those opportunistic, many times not permitted. There's not a footprint. You've got a, a BA, brand ambassador with a satchel and they're sampling. And it's kind of a guerrilla type environment. And so we hold those as street intercepts. Commuter stations, we try to break those out from street intercepts. And certainly when there's a footprint of some sort at a commuter station, we're going to break that out separately. Activations that are designed for college universities get their own attention. Trade shows get their own attention from a B to C versus B to B environment. And then certainly retail and concerts are separate categories for us as well. We use on and off premise as categories in the adult beverage industry. And off premise in the adult beverage industry is focused on retail for the most part, but could also be what some people call special events or things that would otherwise be categorized. But the focus is the idea of the purchase of alcohol outside of an account. We have office parks in our database where we look at business centers and corporate headquarters and those kinds of pieces. And then finally, we have this idea of convention that we struggle with a little bit, but it's the type of event where people are coming together because they share a fandom for a particular product category or a particular market or a particular aspect of the industry or a hobby. And so you're talking about things like E3 or Comic-Con, talking about motorcycle rallies or balloon festivals. It's those things that are a destination event designed to support kind of a gathering of enthusiasts of one time or another. And we find that to be an important segmentation. So that is the overview of how we organize our benchmarking database from the consumer side. It's how we think about outcomes and segment our outcomes. 
And hopefully that's going to be valuable to you. A good benchmarking database, a good, and really a good plan for what you should be asking, what you should be collecting for your experiential is going to have that component that is asking the field staff to provide recaps we talked about in the previous episode. And it's going to have a very limited set of questions you want to ask consumers in order to get their perspective of well. And at the end of the day, there's only three questions that are critical and you can certainly expand upon that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found some value in all of this. I hope this is helping you out. You can always reach out to us at portma.com or you can message us at portma if you tweet. And I hope you are doing well. I hope you're having a great day and I look forward to the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next time as Chris Clegg continues demystifying data. Meantime, head over to demystifyingdata.co to learn more.